The sermon text this morning, okay, the sermon text this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 12. We'll look at the first 12 verses today. <clears throat> Mark, chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So for me, and probably for many of you here, the past few years has been quite interesting, especially uh, making travel difficult. I haven't had the chance to see many of my uh, friends from around the country, or even my parents who live uh, in Korea, and so maybe you're sitting here thinking the same thing. Me too. I have not done as much traveling as I'd like. I haven't seen as many people as I would like. And uh, for me, I I'm not good with texting. I'm not good with the phone. And so uh, my friends and even my family, they will at times get on my case about my use of social media. I said, we, we don't know what's going on in your life. You don't, you don't post. You don't say anything. You just lurk and look at our pictures and judge us, and we don't know what you're doing over there, but we have no idea what's going on in your life. And for me, you know, I, I don't think my, my thoughts are very interesting, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to write a whole bunch of stuff, and maybe for, for Instagram pictures, right? I, I know, you know, what is that platform used for, right? It's like you're showing the world, you don't see what I see, but only when I see it through my picture on your phone. Do you get that? You don't see what I actually see unless you're seeing me seeing it on my phone. Right? A little confusing, but that's really what Instagram is, right? It's a, you're not seeing things that I'm seeing, but only seeing it when I see it on my phone. <laughs> and so there's nothing really awe-inspiring about what I do day to day that would warrant you know, someone to log on and look at my picture and go, wow. <laughs> Victor went to Dunkin' Donuts today, and <laughs> he got a large instead of a medium. I don't know. My life is just not that interesting, right? We're, we're built as people to seek out things that are awe-inspiring, some things that just take our breath away, some things that we see and we conclude this is marvelous. For that reason, many of us here, we, we go on these extraneous hikes, uh, to, for what? To get that good view. Uh, not just for exercise, but what we want to be 
uh, just taken aback by the, the sheer beauty and splendor of something. We want to stand in awe. We seek these things out in our lives. But what about when it comes to our Christian faith? Is there anything awe-inspiring? Is there anything marvelous about the gospel? I think the answer is yes. And it's my hope that through our text in Mark chapter 12, in those first 12 verses, we're going to see that the gospel is something to marvel at. It is incredible, even if we have become jaded by it or have grown up in the faith, we come to church every Sunday, it is something that should inspire all in us every single week when we hear the word of God preached, when we gather for a Bible study, when we think about the great work of our Savior Jesus, we should marvel because it is an incredible and wonderful thing that Jesus has done. And as we see that the gospel is something to be marveled at, I hope that uh, after this sermon, we all would leave this sanctuary and enter our weeks and live a life shaped by that gospel, shaped by standing in awe of what Jesus has done in our lives. To that end, my sermon this morning is going to have two points. Number one, uh, Jesus rejected, and the second point, sinners accepted. Very simple. Uh, Jesus rejected and sinners accepted. Now for my first point. Uh, when we jump into this parable here in Mark 12, right, it uh, gives us this description, verse 1, and he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. Uh, when we jump into a chapter like this, it's helpful to try to figure out where we are, right? Uh, who is Jesus talking to? What's, what's going on here, right? So previous chapter is a little helpful for us as it helps paint this uh, setting for us, right? Uh, verse 27 in chapter 11, the chief priests, the scribes, and all the elders, they approach Jesus in Jerusalem by the temple to question his authority. After confounding these uh, leaders of the church, Jesus then in chapter 12, tells a parable set in a vineyard. He explains that after the owner planted this vineyard, put a fence around it, he dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, leased it to some tenants, and then went to live in another country. Verse 2 tells us that when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Right? This is pretty... Pretty straightforward stuff, pretty standard for winemakers. Uh, I don't think anyone here is a winemaker, but it's pretty normal for someone who is in this business to be constantly checking on the fruit of the vine to figure out, um, you know, is, the, is this going to be a good crop for good wine? You know, is this, is this choice grapes that we're going to use for the wine that we're going to sell at the marketplace? Is this of lower quality that, you know, we'll give out for free or, you know, drink after the good wine is drunk? Pretty standard stuff. But we see here that the tenant workers don't take too kindly to the servant, right? Verse 3, they take them, they beat them, and send them away empty-handed. It's a bit of a, a weird decision on the owner's part, but he decides to send another servant who they strike on the head and treat shamefully. 
And after these two, the owner sends yet another and another. And in verse 5, they actually kill one of these servants. And after that, with many others, some they beat and some they kill. The violence continues to escalate with each servant. At this point, you know, if I was the owner of the field, if you were the owner of the field, maybe you might, you know, thought to yourself, I've, I've run out of servants here. <laughs> there's, there's no one left, right? I, I, I guess I, as the owner of this vineyard, I need to go down and deal with my workers, right? But instead, verse 6 tells us that the owner still had one other, a beloved son, he sends the son thinking, they're going to respect this guy, right? Those other servants, you know, maybe not, but this is my son. They're going to come and respect him. But in response, these tenant workers in cahoots with one another say to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It might be hard to understand why they might think they would get this plot of land if the heir had died, but... Uh, if you didn't know, squatters' rights exist in this year in Pennsylvania, and something very similar existed during that time, too, where if uh, someone owns, let's, let's pretend like I own this church, uh, I don't, but let's say I do, and uh, I unfortunately pass away, and I left this church to no one, no one in my will, and uh, some other people who were maintaining the building after a number of years saying, okay, there's no, Victor has died, there's no one to take over this building. It's now ours. Very similar to what you can actually do uh, in this day and age in Pennsylvania in this year, if you can believe it or not. And so maybe the tenants thought, right, that now with the son out of the way, they might have thought the owner had already died also, and that's why the son had come. They might have believed that after some time, they would be able to claim the land as theirs. And so they kill this son. So we move along in this passage, we notice that the parable doesn't have a definitive conclusion. It does and it doesn't, right? You look, and you might expect something of, you know, the owner was furious, he came and did this, and that was the end of it. But in verse 9, Jesus asks a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The conclusion of the story is set. Something is going to happen, and yet it is promised in the future. The judgment that these tenant workers would receive would come at a later time. Now, as parables go... They're sometimes difficult to understand, right? Um, for people back in the, that day, and even for us, right? The parables can be very difficult to understand. And, uh, you know, they were given in that way to conceal a hidden truth from those who lacked spiritual eyes and ears to understand it, right? But, but here in chapter 12, the meaning of this parable is actually pretty clear to everyone listening, especially to that audience of the chief priests the scribes, and the elders, right? Verse 12 even tells us they understood it. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, and they were correct. And as the leaders are hearing Jesus, they're realizing that 
Jesus is talking about them because as he is going through this parable, there's a number of things that Jesus is drawing out that is now swirling in the minds of these leaders that would lead them to the conclusion that, oh my goodness, he's talking about us. I think first we see is the setting of the parable as a vineyard. The imagery of a vineyard is a very common one during that time, and especially in the Old Testament as it was used to represent Israel. Psalm 80, verse 8, the psalmist compares Israel to a vine that the Lord delivers from Egypt. Jeremiah 2.21, yet I planted you a choice vine. Right? Many examples. But the way that Jesus starts this parable actually brings its listeners to a very specific place in Isaiah 5. How does Jesus start his parable? A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed a wine vat in it. Very similar. And so you can see here that as soon as Jesus is opening his mouth and speaking this parable, they are thinking back to Isaiah 5. And why is, why is Jesus doing this? Right? It's, not, it's not as though Jesus is trying to bring the leaders down memory lane. And say, remember that guy, Isaiah? He was kind of crazy. He said all these cool things. Remember when he, he was talking about the vineyard? Oh, those were good times, right? What a great story, right? It's not as though Jesus is trying to bring up good memories because if you look at it, we won't look at it in too much detail today. All I'll say is this. Isaiah 5 is full of judgment, condemnation, we see that despite all that God had done for his people, Israel responded with unfaithfulness. And in response to that, God promises judgment on this vineyard representing people. We see that as now the leaders are hearing Jesus in uh, Mark chapter 12, they're recognizing that Jesus is actually carrying over themes from Isaiah 5, judgment. And now it is directed at the leaders for their own wrongdoing, for their mistreatment of God's people and of God, most importantly. As Jesus moves on, the connections become more clear, and it becomes even more apparent that he is talking about them. And as he goes on and describes how these servants are beaten, sent, beaten, killed, mistreated, you, you can just, it's almost funny, right? The, the leaders here are probably just, just sweating, holding their heads and just looking around, right? Here they are in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. You can see statues around the, the walls of all the prophets of old, that were mistreated by God's people, by their ancestors in 
the past. All these great prophets who were stoned, beaten, and ridiculed by Israel. And as Jesus is telling this story of tenants in charge of a vineyard, dealing with the servant of the owner in the same way that their ancestors dealt with the prophets, there is no way they're looking around and going, what is this guy talking about? (laughs) Who's Jesus talking about? Why is he telling this weird story? It is so clear to them that this is directed at them. He's talking about the leaders. Confirmed in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is accusing the leaders, which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. So far, we've seen Israel as the vineyard, the tenants as the leaders of the church, the prophets of the old are servant. And so there's only a couple more pieces left to figure out this parable, right? Who is this beloved son and who is the owner of the vineyard? While not explicitly stated, Jesus gives a very big clue in verse 6 when he describes the owner had a beloved son. The beginning of Jesus' ministry How was he identified in Mark 1, chapter 11? By God the Father. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so as Jesus delivers this parable, it is obvious that Jesus is identifying himself as the beloved son. Elsewhere in scripture, Mark 8 He discloses to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. It's all coming together now as we approach the end of the gospel narrative. And so while the parable here is directed at the leaders and the judgment that they would receive on that last day, the parable actually centers on Jesus as he illustrates the purpose of his life. The purpose of his mission to come, to be rejected, and be killed. And he sums up this parable by linking it to Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Like I said before, this parable, it's, it's pretty straightforward once we really understand it. But every time I come to this, I get tripped up by these last verses. What? This is the Lord's doing? And it's marvelous in our eyes? This is odd, right? Because this is a tragic story. In a vacuum, you tell this story, it's just like, man, that's like one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. This guy lost all his servants and he lost his son. We find out that's actually not surprising to the Lord. It's his doing, and yet it's described as marvelous. Why is it marvelous? Because when you think about it, that's not a word to describe something tragic, something terrible. Right? Uh, let's pretend it's next week. MLK Day has passed. The day of work has come and gone, and hanging out with you, and I tell you a story. I said, man, you wouldn't believe what happened to me on Monday. I said, what happened on Monday? I said, well, you know, uh, it was a day of work, so uh, John was trying to figure out uh, how the work was going, so he sent me to, to give report and figure it out, and you know, everyone there, they, as soon as they saw me, they, 
they beat me up, they drew on my face, they stole my shoes, and you know, so I ran out of there. And you know, and so John, he wasn't, wasn't very happy about that, so he sent another staff member and another, and they kept doing the same thing over and over again. And at the end of that story, if you look at me and say, marvelous, <laughs> I probably wouldn't want to tell you any more stories. I probably wouldn't want to hang out with you too much, or I'd probably ask you, like, do you know what marvelous means, right? Usually you only use it uh, with something positive. You don't go to someone and say, you missed it, man. It was such a marvelous funeral. It, you missed it. Uh, it was the funeral of a lifetime. Oh, I was stuck in traffic for three hours. It was marvelous. That's not how we use the word, and yet... When we come to Mark 12, this is how Jesus' life and his mission to save us is described. Something marvelous in our eyes. This brings me to my second and final point, sinners accepted. Why is this story awe-inspiring? Why is this parable that describes Jesus' life something to be marveled at. I think in one sense, we marvel at the unthinkable action that God would actually send his son to be rejected and killed, fully knowing what was going to happen to his son. It's not as though God would send his son thinking that, yes, we're going to accept him and uh, not deal with him harshly as we did the prophets and when Jesus killed, God is freaking out in heaven saying, I, I did not see that coming. No, instead, this is the Lord's doing. Both he and Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And he did that because we needed to be saved. He came to save sinners like you, to save sinners like me, so that we could be accepted and counted as part of God's family. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but through this rejection and death, he became the very cornerstone on which God's church, his family, is now built on, a church that you and I are now invited into. And it is this that we marvel, that the Son of God would die for someone like me, as insignificant as I am because he desired to love us so much and to spend eternity with us. And in this way, we see that Mark 12 actually shows us the harsh reality of what sin is. Because it is absolutely necessary that Jesus had to come and that death had to be offered up, the perfect life of someone without sin, because sin is something so heinous. So disgusting, everything that is contrary to who God is in his holiness, that in order for us to be saved from it, a just punishment needed to be exacted. So while there is something incredibly tragic about Jesus' life and his mission, there is also something incredibly marvelous about it, that the beloved son would come to die for us, to offer himself to take on our punishment in order for us to live with God. There was no other way. 
sin had to be dealt with. The only alternative is for that punishment to come on us, that full wrath, holy and righteous anger on each and every one of us, something that we all deserve. I have a friend of mine who frequently likes to ask questions about my faith. Uh, ask lots of questions. Sometimes he's just a jerk about it, but oftentimes he is really genuine and one of the things that we can't wrap his head around is how could a perfect God allow people to die? And in one sense, I tell him, I said, I don't really get it either. But it is marvelous. It is incredible that this perfect God did not let sin go unpunished or else he would not be perfect. But instead, he has sent someone to save us so that we can live. And that, to me, even though I don't get all of it, I don't get every single detail of it, I don't get why God would do that, I still don't get it, and yet, I'm in awe of it. I stand in wonder of it. And I worship God because of it, because he didn't need to do that. And yet, here I am, by the grace of God, standing in Christ's work because of his great love for me and for you. One thing that I think we need to take away from this text, and I struggled with the application for this, that we could have gone in a number of ways, but I think as simple as we can get it, I just want to ask the question this morning, are you in awe of the gospel? Is the gospel something marvelous in your sight? The answer should be yes. But oftentimes our lives sadly do not reflect this. You grow up in the church. You come to church every Sunday. You go to Bible study every week. You pray every day. You're in his word every day. Time and time again, oftentimes it's easy to grow numb to such an incredible gift, an incredible thing that Jesus has accomplished through his own death and resurrection. And sadly, oftentimes our lives reflect this. More often or not, we try to live in harmony with just a little bit of sin. So as long as it doesn't affect those around me, so long as it doesn't really, uh, you know, have an impact on my life, that's okay. But really, that shows us what a low view that we have of our Savior. How we fail to stand and marvel at what Jesus has done. And so this text is a challenge for us to really think about what Jesus has done for us in our lives. Why did he need to come? Was it necessary that Jesus came in this way? And the answer is yes, because sin is so gross. And sin deserved such a treatment that Jesus needed to come. And as we reflect on this, Every Sunday as we come and worship him, we're reminded of our sin, but also the beauty of our Savior. As we gather in our week-to-week Bible studies in our home groups to remind ourselves of the beauty of this gospel. To be amazed at who Jesus is. I pray that we would be a church and our lives would be shaped 
by this marvelous gospel. But as we think through this application, it's very clear, very simple. It's also incredibly difficult. Who among us can say confidently that every aspect of their lives here is shaped by that gospel? That wonderful good news. That marvelous work of Jesus coming to die for me. Not one of us here. Not even me. No one on the staff, none of the elders, I'm sure. But we praise and give thanks to God and find confidence in knowing that we are not saved by your best intention, by your best efforts to be amazed at who Jesus is. But we are saved instead by the rejected Savior himself who freely came to die and offer himself for us in order that he might change our hearts to turn us towards God and to remove the veil of sin from our eyes day after day that we might behold with wonder who God is and what Jesus has done for us. It's my prayer that we as a church, as Liberty, would marvel that Jesus' rejection meant our acceptance. That the Lord not only accepts us, but beckons and woos us to his arms as a loving father, even though in our sin we have rejected him time and time again. While we did not deserve even a shred of decency, our pathway to life was made sure and secured by a Savior who died willingly for us. It's this Jesus that we cling to day after day until that last day when he comes and returns to make all things new again. Amen.